This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Thank you for listening to The History of World War II, Episode 48, The Time Draws Near. The battle over the channel had been going on for about three weeks now, and both sides had learned some things. Air Chief Marshal Dowding had learned to hate convoys. There were so many of them, and they all needed and required protection. But this meant standard patrols for his planes, which exhausted his men and those on the ground responsible for keeping the aircraft in good shape. He also hated fighting over the water. Just because a plane went down didn't automatically mean that the pilot was lost, but a wounded pilot was most likely unable to swim or tread water until rescued by a boat, if he could be found and rescued at all. But Churchill didn't mind so much, and the fighter in him liked the idea of the convoys being used as bait, so RAF fighters could get at their enemies. But he wisely did not interfere with doubting and the Admiralty on this issue. The Admiralty learned the high cost of sending convoys through the channel, and so, on July 26th, canceled all daylight merchant movement through the Straits. Soon after, the Navy gave up on Dover as a base, due to the increasing quantities of large German guns on the opposite coast, and moved to Harridge, and sheerness. But the attacks from the Luftwaffe and the German guns continued, and so, on July 29th, daytime naval movements ceased as well. The Air Ministry had learned a few things as well, and didn't like any of them. Some wanted a more offensive nature to the British war effort, especially towards the German E-boat, or motor torpedo boats. Others wanted Dowling to work with Bomber Command and plan their own attacks on German air bases, as they landed after a sortie. 
It was assumed that they would be too low on fuel to take off again and defend themselves. On this matter, Dowding let his silence speak for him. But it's easy to imagine a list of reasons why not to go along with this proposal. First, he had just got his men back from France. The last thing he wanted to do was send them over again. He also did not want to send his pilots over the channel, only to end up in the water if shot down. Furthermore, there were always large numbers of German fighters patrolling over northern France. Their ability to defend against a British raid in the daytime was not even worth discussing. And the last reason, I'm guessing, was that Downing and others had spent years developing a defensive air shield for Britain, not an offensive weapon, to launch at northern France and Germany. The Germans, for their part, were first proud and elated that the British could no longer use their channel for the convoys during the day. But the more experienced of them then realized that those ships had to go somewhere, and that obviously meant the German planes would have to fly even further away to get at them. Hitler's Directive 17 had been issued, and so Goering met with his staff. He emphasized the need for their airplanes to conserve fuel to increase their effectiveness. He also, in an about-face, wanted the fighters to stay very close to the bombers and to not just fly off to pursue a single enemy fighter. Gehring also decided it would be a good idea to highlight the closest part of northern France to Britain by marking that territory with lights and smoke. This would help his pilots, who would be short on fuel, to make for the closest landing strip, if need be. He further stressed the need to take out the tall radio transmission devices along the British coasts. He saw it as imperative to disrupt the communications of fighter command. Of course, those towers played a much more significant role than just simply sending and receiving radio signals. Meanwhile, the German radio communications in France were now all about fuel and the range of their ME-109 fighters. The ME carried 87 gallons of fuel and, when cruising, had a range of 412 miles. The Spitfire fared a little better. From Calais to London was 100 straight miles, but neither Air Force got much of an opportunity to fly in a straight line. After takeoff, a fighter had to form up with his group, then zigzag his way across the channel, and then head towards his true objective. The dogfights would normally develop long before a target was reached. All this came down to the ME having 10 minutes over London. We've already covered the Luftwaffe's attempts to create drop tanks and how that didn't pan out. They should have tried harder. The pilots, young, brave men, suddenly lost their nerve at the thought of not making it home after a battle and putting down in the channel. Having won daytime control of the waterway helped the pilots none at all. Still, Friday, August 2nd, found Gehring in a splendid mood. Finally, he had the go-ahead from his leader. His report went out to the Luftlots about the beginning of the final assault, and British intelligence picked it up. They told Churchill, who told Dowding. Finally, Gehring would show everyone what the Luftwaffe, his Luftwaffe, could do. His planes would lead the way for the 15 assault divisions stationed and waiting in northern France, Germany, and Belgium. His would be the tip of the spear that pierced the British heart. And the reports that came to him 
had him believing that the British were throwing in all their fighters each day just to hold back what attacks had come so far. But, just to be sure, he would take a few more days to draw out and destroy the rest. Fighter Command was about to get the surprise of its life. This day, August 2nd, Gehring issued his own orders for Adler Talk, or Eagle Day. Soon, Luftflotten 2 and 3 would begin the all-out assault on Great Britain. Disappointed, he was told by Hitler to leave London alone. Only the supreme leader could order an attack there, or any other terror bombing. Still, Gehring had enough to focus on. The first step was to destroy the whole of fighter command, namely, the aircraft found in the air and on the ground, the airfield buildings, landing areas, and, of course, their radar stations, which Gehring mistook for advanced communication relays. He assumed the RAF was fighting a decentralized battle and that each squadron stayed within range of its own radio towers. Again, he expected all this to take about three days of good weather, and it would be best if those three days came in a row to really maximize the Luftwaffe's striking capability. His meteorological experts had told him that the weather he needed would be coming in early August. It would soon be time. But Gary knew he needed a few days of preparation before he could start. He quickly estimated that six days would be enough and proudly announced that August 10th would be the Day of Eagles. But what might be considered, with hindsight, an ill omen was the weather that Friday. Although clear over the Midlands, the channel was cloudy and drizzling. Over the French north coast, the Luftwaffe kept up its normal patrols. This not only prevented any decent chance of a British air offensive, it was only when a group of planes broke from their formations and headed across the channel that Fighter Command would know a raid was in the making. This left them with minutes to respond. But the far north would not have to worry about attacks this day. And it wasn't because of the weather. The Luftwaffe was focused on the east and south coasts and searched through the clouds for any shipping that could be found. Then, they could use the weather to their advantage by disappearing in it. To the east, convoys spotted raiders above, but the raiders did not launch an attack. At least, not against them. RAF squadrons lifted off to give battle, but couldn't locate the enemy, and so soon returned home without firing a shot, for the most part. But soon after, near Harwich, Stukas located and sank an anti-submarine trawler. All but one sailor survived, to be rescued later. To the south, on the west coast of White, at Yarmouth, raiders bombed shipping below, but missed entirely. To balance this out, the British fighters that took off to engage them were unable to find them in the clouds. That afternoon in the southeast, three raids approached Dover, but turned around before they could attack or be engaged. Continuing this theme of Almost coming to blows, a convoy was attacked near Clacton around 4.30 p.m. on the east coast, but the ships were undamaged and the RAF fighters were not able to intercept the raiders. Dover again had the attention of the Luftwaffe units from Calais around 6.30 that afternoon, but again did not attack any shipping and again were not successfully engaged. That night, there was widespread but relatively light bombing with the normal mine lane around the Thames estuary and along the east coast, 
to Aberdeen. Wales received special attention this night as numerous raids passed overhead. Raiders were plotted over Weymouth, Sealand, Liverpool, and Lancashire. Swansea was bombed around 11.30 p.m. and suffered considerable damage to several homes and automobiles. There were five casualties as well as a result. The raid started and ended at Cherbourg, which made the South Coast nervous as well, as they assumed they were the target when flown over. A few raids circled the London Artillery Zone, but dropped their bombs on the Midlands. Still, the AA guns were ready, but probably relieved when the raiders continued on their way. To the far north, raids were flown over Edinburgh and Glasgow, but then they turned south over Cumberland and flew away to the east. Additional raids of respectable strength were plotted heading towards the Orkneys and the Shetlands around 10 p.m., but there were no reports of significant damage. It looked as if neither side would lose a plane this day, but that proved to be not the case for the Luftwaffe. Late that night, the steamer Highlander, a part of the convoy FN-239, was found and attacked by two HE-115 torpedo bombers about 20 miles south of Aberdeen. One HE was shot down by the escort sloop HMS Weston, but the other HE met its doom in a unique way. As it was strafing the Highlander, it misjudged its proximity and clipped the ship's mast. It then crash-landed on the Highlander's poop deck. Further east, the submarine HMS Thames hit a mine and sank southwest of Stavanger, Norway. All 62 members of her crew were lost. Elsewhere, German U-boat 99 successfully torpedoed three empty tankers from convoy OB-191, but amazingly, all three stayed afloat despite the damage. And although this was covered in an earlier episode, on this day, a French military court sentenced General Charles de Gaulle to death in absentia for leading the Free French Movement in London. Losses for the day were zero for the RAF and three for the Luftwaffe. Total reported losses to date were 71 and 138, respectively. And although it may seem strange, I have saved the first day's action for last. Operation Hurry, the British plan to recapture the offensive in the Mediterranean, commenced at 4.45 a.m. Twelve hurricanes of the newly formed 261 Squadron launched from the aircraft carrier HMS Argus just southwest of Sardinia to bomb Axis forces on Malta. And to keep the carrier group safe, eight swordfish torpedo bombers from the HMS Ark Royal attacked an Italian airfield at Cagliari on the south coast of Sardinia. Several Italian aircraft were destroyed. They also laid mines in the harbor before leaving. If Gary was hoping a new day would bring new opportunities, he was going to have to wait for another day. Saturday, August 3rd, was dull gray with a few bright patches of sunlight, but not enough of them. The cloud base was 4,000 feet, and visibility was 2 to 5 miles, depending on the weather you were in at the moment. Or, in other words, the typical British weather came to the rescue with fog in the morning, only to be replaced by low cloud cover in the south, in the midlands, in the afternoon. 
And because of this, the day's activity would copy the previous one. Convoy shipping or potential targets were approached, but more than not were left alone, and the RAF either chose not to engage or tried and was unable to locate the raiders. To the far north, a total of three meteorological flights were experienced that day, one in the morning near the Orkneys, one in the afternoon off St. Ab's Head, and one in the late evening just east of Aberdeen. But there appeared to be no follow-up bombing raids. To the southwest, four raids approached the coast between Swanage and Land's End in the morning, but only one of these actually crossed the coast at St. Albans Head. It then proceeded to Bristol and Cardiff, and then returned the same way. Passing over St. Albans Head a second time, the aircraft found a worthy target and dropped its load on a trawler below. The bombs missed, but the trawler returned fire and, in one of the few times in the war, actually hit the bomber. It passed over their ship and then dove into the sea. To the south, reconnaissance flights were reported over the Isle of Wight and Beachy Head. A raid followed each flight and a coastal patrol was bombed. However, damage was slight. As for Dover, reconnaissance flights passed overhead in the morning to be followed by four raids of at least 15 aircraft each in the afternoon. All the raids turned around before reaching Dover, but only one or two were harassed as they headed home. British fighters scored a few hits, but it wasn't until after the war that it was found that three raiders didn't make it home. The East Coast was lucky this day in that a convoy was spotted by a reconnaissance flight, but no raid followed up. The RAF managed, again, not to lose any aircraft in combat, while the Luftwaffe lost four. Total reported losses to date were the same 71 for the British, and the Germans had increased to 142. That night, the far north saw an unusual number of inland raids, but damage was minor. Also, there was an increase in mine lane in the area as well. To the west, around Liverpool, to the southeast, around East Anglia, and the southwest, plotted raids of single or small formations. But again, damage was minor and random. Mine lane flights were also plotted near the Thames Estuary, the southeast, and along the south. Around 9.30 p.m., a bomb that failed to go off was dropped near a military camp at Leyden Hills, near Essex. Also, more copies of Hitler's speech were dropped on Epping and Waltham Cross, near Essex. A report was brought to Downing that day to inform him that there were currently 708 aircraft serviceable and 1,434 pilots ready for service. Of course, these numbers were nowhere near what Gehring had at hand, and this only reinforced the Air Marshal's defensive outlook on the battle. The wider naval warfare continued, as U-Boat 57 sunk the Swedish steamer Atos around 8.10 a.m. that morning of the 3rd. One crew member died in the attack, but 21 others, as well as six passengers, were picked up by the Icelandic trawler Scuttle. It turns out that one of the passengers was a sailor from the Swedish steamer Telia Gorthon, which had been sunk by U-Boat 38 back on June 20th. He was being repatriated from Liverpool 
to Sweden. Around 7 p.m. that evening, 300 miles off the coast of Senegal, West Africa, another German U-boat stopped the Yugoslavian steamer RAD with gunfire. The Germans discovered that the ship was carrying contraband, namely chemicals from the U.S. to Durban, South Africa. The crew was told to abandon ship as it would be sunk. So, about 8.15 p.m., the 29 crew members took to their lifeboats, and the RAD was hit with several torpedoes. The last one broke the ship in half, and it went down in 15 minutes. The entire crew was later picked up by the British steamer Grodno and taken to Freetown, Sierra Leone. Meanwhile, in Africa, and yes, we will go into great detail soon about the war there, British Somaliland finds itself surrounded by Italian colonies. Italian Somaliland, Ethiopia, and Eritrea. This is too tempting for Mussolini, who wants his own empire, and desperately needs to be seen as an equal to Hitler, the conqueror of Europe. At the time, British Somaliland is held by 4,000 colonial soldiers, under the newly promoted Brigadier General Arthur Reginald Chatter, commander of the Somaliland Camel Corps. They have very little artillery, no tanks, no armored cars, or anti-tank weapons. After much goading from Il Duce, the invasion of British Somaliland commences early that morning, with 25,000 Italian troops, commanded by General Nasi, who has armored vehicles, a few tanks, some artillery, and air support. The invasion comes from the direction of the Italian-controlled Ethiopia. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity, and another with Merrill. And I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination, with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. Sunday, August 4th, was a day of decisive planning, but indecisive weather. Dowling was determined to keep his planes and pilots on the ground, and Garing was equally determined to force him up to engage them. But the weather won control of the contest, again, as usual. The day started out fine, then became partly cloudy by midday, and disrupted visibility just enough to discourage a sortie, but then cleared as evening came on and the sun went down. The day seemed to start with the usual reconnaissance and meteorological flights over Scotland, the west, the east, southwest, and south. And probably due to the reports going back to their respective bases, very few raids were launched. The ones that were launched and approached some part of Britain were not engaged and did not attack. 
The closest possible engagement occurred over the Isle of Wight. Several raids approached the island as a convoy was found at anchor at Spithead, near St. Helens, waiting out the fog. Most turned around before coming too close, but the two that didn't turned around once British fighters were launched. And due to the inability of either side to make contact, neither side lost aircraft in the battle. However, a British pilot, J.P. Walsh of 616 Squadron, died when his Spitfire spun out of control during combat practice. But since his death was not during combat, it is not counted as a loss in battle. However, it is one less pilot for the British. That night, fog grounded many planned raids over Britain. About six were launched, and their inability to find anything, and their subsequent reports halted any additional raids. Still, probably without knowing it, one of those few German bombers inflicted damage and casualties. A little after midnight, the military camp at Canet, near Cambridgeshire, was hit. One soldier was killed, and another twelve were injured. One or two of the other bombers had a success of a kind as well. More copies of Hitler's speech were dropped over Lagstone, Swansea, Yorkshire, and Christchurch. British intelligence reported that the German people were already tired of what successful bombing there was by the British. Some of this is due to Hitler, Goering, and Dr. Goebbels, who proclaimed that no British bombers would ever reach German soil, whereas Churchill made a conscious choice early on not to hold back negative information from the public. But because of the German public's expectations, they hoped their leaders were correct and that the war with Britain would soon be over. Beyond the Channel, the naval warfare continued. Around 9.20 p.m., U-boat 58 sunk the Greek steamer Pindos, 10 miles from the Irish coast. Three of its crew died, and 29 survivors headed toward County Donegal, Ireland, in lifeboats. The steamer had been carrying 7,590 tons of grain from Sierra Leone. Meanwhile, 300 miles northwest of Ireland, U-boat 52 sinks three British steamers, which were part of a convoy HX-60. SS Geraldine Mary lost one passenger and two crew members, while the other 44 crew were eventually rescued. The SS Gagoval went down as well, but all 37 of its crew were picked up by the destroyer HMS Vanuck and taken to Liverpool. SS King Alfred lost seven of its crew, but the other 34 were also picked up by the HMS Vanuck. The Royal Navy escort vessels depth-charged U-52, which suffered significant damage, but still managed to make for Kiel, Germany, for repairs. It would not return to action until November 17th of that year. And over the last few episodes, I'm sure I sound like a broken record when I say that night had the usual mine lane along the east, west, and southern coast. But all that hard work was starting to pay off for Germany. On the night of the 4th, Three British minesweeping trawlers struck mines. The HMT Drummer, two killed. The Marsona, 11 killed. And the Oswaldian, 12 killed. Sunk at different points along the British coast. But irony is also found in the water, as the German anti-submarine trawler Perseus hit a mine and sunk off the coast of Holland. Off in the North Atlantic, 
1,700 miles east of Florida. The German merchant cruiser Vitter comes upon the empty Norwegian tanker Bolu. The Vitter opens up with her guns and four crew members are killed. The remaining 28 survivors launch their lifeboats and escape. Or rather, Captain Helmut Ruchtischel of the Vitter leaves them alone and to their own devices. Meanwhile, one of its torpedoes circles around and threatens its own ship. But eventually, the Vitter is safe and finishes sinking the abandoned Bolu. The survivors will later be picked up by the British tanker Cymbeline on August 13th and taken to Gibraltar. Later, in May 1947, the captain of the Vitter would be tried as a war criminal, found guilty of other charges, but acquitted of abandoning the survivors of the Bolu. Meanwhile, the Italian attack on British Somaliland continues. Their objective is Berbera, the main port and capital, 125 miles away. They march in three columns. The westernmost, or left column, will travel to the port of Zeila, near the border with French Somaliland. The center, or main column, will head to Berbera and ready itself to take the capital. The easternmost, or right column, will stay close to the center column and protect its flank. Again, this will all be covered in detail soon, but I just wanted to balance things out a bit more. The weather improved on Monday, August 5th, with fine weather over most of Britain, but a slight mist hung in the channel. Still, a vast improvement overall. Early in the morning, a raid approached Dover, but turned as a squadron rose to meet it. Soon after, about 8.30 a.m., four raids formed up over Calais and headed back to Dover. There were at least 53 aircraft coming that morning. So, four squadrons rose to give battle, but then the raids turned and headed for the protection of the standard patrols over northern France. However, they didn't turn in time, or the Spitfires, probably using the BAM-100 high-octane fuel, were closer than they thought and caught up to the rear elements. The two squadrons of Spitfires managed to take out five ME-109s before heading home. But what they may have not considered was that the MEs still had plenty of fuel, as they had not done more than take off, form up, and head to Dover before turning around. So some of the 109s turned and gave combat. The result was that one Spitfire did not make it back home. The area would see one other raid that day as the Luftwaffe planes approached a convoy traveling from Hastings to North Foreland. However, they did not attack the ships below. To the south, a raid approached Ventnor but turned away while still 45 miles away. Further west, another raid approached Bournemouth but again, turned while it was still 10 miles away. To the west, radio interceptions picked up German communications in the Bristol Channel area, but no attacks developed. That afternoon, a series of potential raids approached to the south, but again, turned before attacking. Still, a squadron of hurricanes were able to catch up to one raid and take out another ME-109. To the north, a raid was plotted over the Firth of Tay, Eyewitnesses said it had unusual markings on its fuselage, but more importantly, no attack took place. To the east, at least 10 raids approached the coast, but only two crossed over. No damage was reported, and it suspected that the other raiders were only looking for shipping. There were additional raids off East Anglia, 
but none dropped bombs. That night's activities were very light, with raids plotted over Dover, Kent, Cardiff, and Pembrokeshire to the west, and also North Walsham to the east. And because all is fair in love and war, when some of the bombers dropped more copies of Hitler's speech, it was found that some of the containers that landed on Tunbridge and Kent had small explosive devices attached. The mine lane was light as well, with those flights being plotted to the east between the Wash and the Tay. The day's losses were one for the RAF and six for the Luftwaffe. Total reported losses to date were 72 and 148, respectively. And it's worth noting that the RAF had an increase of 55 serviceable fighters in the last two days. Of course, there was no way Gehring could know this, but his plan was not, to date, working out. And the battle raged on away from the channel. At 9.38 p.m., 20 miles north of Ireland, U-boat 56 torpedoed the British steamer Boma, which was carrying 10,000 tons of coal from Cardiff. Three of its crew died, and the other 50 were rescued by the Norwegian tanker Vilha. The Boma sank the next day. The British steamer Cape St. George struck the wreck of the steamer Rad, sunk two days ago. A gaping hole was ripped, and the steamer sunk. But all 65 crew members were picked up by the British steamer Grodno, who already had Rad's crew on board. They were all taken to Freetown, Sierra Leone. And along the British east coast off Suffolk, the British minesweeper trawler HMT River Clyde hit a mine and sank. Twelve of its crew died, and its captain, Jay Grant, was wounded. In Africa, the overwhelming Italian forces took the port of Zeila on the east coast, close to the border with French Somaliland. The British colonial forces were cut off and isolated. The Italian western flank then moved westward onto Berbera. The Italians used their light tanks to push back the Somaliland Camel Corps and the other unarmored British units. If the Germans were hoping the improved weather would hold out, their hopes were not realized. Tuesday, August 6th, was generally cloudy with very strong winds. This would force both sides to hold back on launching planned sorties or patrols. The men rested and the aircraft were repaired. Still, the action got an early start with an attack on the RAF station at Landau in South Wales around 5.40 a.m. A hangar and two aircraft were damaged. This was the coming of Phase 2 that Gehring assumed the Luftwaffe was ready for, namely the destruction of Fighter Command's bases and radio towers. Because of the weather, most attempted interceptions were not achieved. However, to balance things out, there were no casualties either. About an hour later that morning, a Dornier 17 located and reported a convoy near Lowstoff on the east coast. 85 Squadron, made up of hurricanes, responded. They caught up to the raider and shot it down. To the east, southeast, south, and far north, numerous single-plane raids approached the respective coastline, but were chased away when British fighters rose to intercept. However, with the cloud cover what it was, 
it's doubtful that the majority of the raiders would have been successfully engaged. However, the RAF would know loss this day when pilot HWA Britton, B-R-I-T-T-O-N, of 17 Squadron, tried to take off but crashed his hurricane. It quickly caught fire and Britain died before the fire could be put out. Each side lost a plane and a pilot this day. Total reported losses to date were 73 and 149, respectively. That night, raids were plotted off East Anglia, but Fighter Command was not sure if it was the usual mine lane or perhaps German attempts to intercept outgoing British bombers. Meanwhile, British intelligence reports that neutrals have heard Germans talking about the effect of British bombing. But Fighter Command takes this information with a grain of salt and stays focused on defending their coasts. Mine lane flights were plotted to the south, as well as raids from Norway to Scotland and the Firth of Forth area. A total of 12 raids suspected of mine lane were plotted along the Cornish coast and Bristol Channel area. Away from the channel, the British submarine HMS Sea Line is rammed by the German anti-submarine vessel JU-124, 20 miles off the south coast of Norway. Sea Line survives, but it would be in repairs until October 23rd of that year. British submarine HMS Pandora reached Malta from Gibraltar with ground equipment and spare parts for the hurricanes delivered a few days ago by HMS Argus. The weather was still not cooperating with the Luftwaffe on Wednesday, August 7th. The skies were fair in the Midlands, but cloudy with thunderstorms to the east and then clouds to the southeast. This rotten weather of late obviously favored the defenders, but today worked against them. Around 6.30 a.m., hurricanes from 46 Squadron tried to intercept raiders that were attacking a convoy off Cromer. They could see below them clearly enough at the splashes the bombs made as they struck near the ships, but were unable to locate the position of the enemy bombers. The clouds covered everything from five to 10,000 feet, and the attackers got away. A little later, multiple raids approached the Isle of Wight, and fighter command scrambled. However, the invading planes were not intercepted, nor did they attack any cities or shipping. Over Scotland, about 10.40 a.m., a raid of at least 11 aircraft approached within 30 miles of Aberdeen. I say at least 11 aircraft because as soon as they were plotted, they disappeared from RDF detection, but no attacks were reported. Later in the day, a single raider approached St. Abbs Head, but headed back before it could be engaged or dropped any bombs. Back to the south, multiple respectable-sized raids approached White, but left for home when squadrons from Tangmere and Middle Wallop rose to intercept. Losses for the day were zero for the RAF and four for the Luftwaffe. Total reported losses to date were 73 and 153, respectively. That night, the bombing was widespread. Targets ranged from the Thames to Aberdeen on the east coast, and from Poole to Land's End and up to Liverpool. Damage was inflicted by high-explosive bombs as they were dropped between Wendover and Beerton. Windows of nearby homes and buildings were shattered, but no casualties were reported.
The South also experienced raids as bomb fell on Dorset and Exeter. There was also extensive mine laying around the Thames, Harridge, Portland, and of course to the north. Away from the channel, the British troop ship Mohammed Ali El Kabir, which was carrying 631 troops, 66 naval personnel, and 165 crew members from Britain to Gibraltar, was hit by a torpedo from U-boat 38 around 9.40 p.m., 150 miles off Ireland. The escort destroyer HMS Griffin depth-charged U-boat 38 for two hours while her victim sank. Ten crew members, 86 troops, and naval personnel were killed. The Griffin rescued 155 crew, 611 troops, and naval personnel waiting in lifeboats, rafts, or treading water. And finally, Looking back at East Africa, Indian troops from Aden, 1st Battalion, 2nd Punjab Regiment, reinforced British forces in British Somaliland. But what they didn't bring were tanks. Next time, we'll cover another week of battle and the Day of Eagles. The same raids and interceptions will continue, but the numbers involved will rise dramatically. The Luftwaffe will use its newfound knowledge of Fighter Command's defensive moves, and the RAF will use the experience it has gained in plotting, communications, and tactics. The Battle of Britain's future will begin. Greetings to everyone out there from Central Virginia. Um, if it's okay with you guys, I'm going to thank the people who made donations on the next episode. I just wanted to hurry up and get this one out to you like I had promised. So it's been a week and two days. That's not too bad. That's actually pretty good for me. But anyway, um, I, and I also wanted to remind everybody about the tour. Please do not forget about the tour. If there's any way you could go, I would really love to see as many of you or meet as many of you as I possibly can. And I think we'd have a great time. Um, I can only imagine the pictures that I would be able to take, the stories that I can tell, and the the improvement of this podcast if I can go. So, again, um, I know it's a, a commitment, but if there's any way you could swing it, I would really love to see you guys, and I'd really love to head out there and see all these amazing places firsthand. And if it helps, think of it as a uh, early Christmas present to yourself. And I'll see you in about a week with episode 49.